As an entrepreneur, you're always on the go. So turn your mobile phone into a business phone system with Grasshopper, the entrepreneur's phone system. Make and receive business calls using our iPhone and Android apps. Get a new business number or keep your current one. Forward your calls to any phone and even get your voicemails transcribed. Join over 250,000 small businesses who stay connected with Grasshopper. See how it works at grasshopper.com, the entrepreneur's phone system. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to The Authentic Woman. This is your host, Shannon Fisher. Thank you for joining us on this lovely Sunday night. Uh, hopefully a lot of people are snowed in and uh, and tuning in and listening. It's been quite a week on the East Coast, so it's 8 o'clock. Uh, we're doing a live show tonight, 8 o'clock East Coast time. So for the West Coasters and anyone else who's, who's listening, uh, I hope you guys are warmer than we are. Uh, but we're, we all have power, and we're excited to, to dive into this topic tonight. Uh, the name of tonight's show is uh, the Centennial Rally for Equal Rights History Meets Politics. And I've got three uh, amazing guests, all of whom have been actively involved in government relations for decades, and they are ardent, ardent advocates for the Equal Rights Amendment, and they are in the process of planning a series of events to commemorate a very historic event in women's rights. About 100 years ago uh, at the Virginia Capitol, there was a large rally for women's suffrage, and they are going to reenact that of sorts and surround some uh, some events around that to really raise awareness of the Equal Rights Amendment and of a lot of women's rights issues that still exist. My guests tonight are Donna Gramsci, Candy Graham, and Eileen Davis. Donna is a member of the League of Women Voters, and she has been, uh, she lived in a state where the Equal Rights Amendment was ratified. So she moved to the, uh, moved to the Commonwealth of Virginia in the 1980s and was shocked to learn that it hadn't been ratified in Virginia, and it still hasn't. So uh, she was moved to join the League of Women Voters shortly after her arrival, and now she is the uh, director, uh, the chair of women's issues for the League of Women Voters. My other two guests, Candy Graham and Eileen Davis, are two of the co-founders of Women Matter, which is an organization dedicated to the ratification of the ERA in Virginia, and uh, Women matter is also a part of the national coalition working with congress to advance the era so without further ado i would like to welcome all three of you to the authentic woman welcome thank you thank you <laughs> thank you thank you shannon it's wonderful to be here so before we before we dive into kind of talking about the progression of the issues over the last hundred years and and what's going on right now, I'd like to talk a little bit about the series of events that you guys are are planning that are that are coming right up. So if you guys could could tell me the the date and the event and uh, and what's going to to happen during uh, especially the the reenactment of the rally, that would be great. I love um, you want to start? Candy, no, I let Candy do that. Yeah. Okay. Um, actually, this started when uh, one of our members found a photo of the suffragists on the Capitol steps in Richmond that dated back 101 years ago. We we're holding the rally on February 16th, which um, is also right around what we call Crossover Day in the Virginia General Assembly. And we can explain the significance of that a little bit more. 
Um, but at the time, this was in 1915, so the suffragists are advocating for women's right to vote, which didn't actually, that 19th Amendment didn't actually get ratified until 1920, and in Virginia, it didn't get ratified until 1954. Now wow. we are trying to continue <laughs> this unfinished business because the right to vote, the 19th Amendment, is almost exactly like the Equal Rights Amendment, um, equality of rights versus the right to vote shall not be denied or abridged by any by the United States or by any state on account of sex. Um, okay. And so this was supposed to be part B, but now a hundred years later, we're still trying to get the Equal Rights Amendment ratified. So we are using this historic occasion to um, rededicate ourselves to this initiative. And uh, we have the bill before the Virginia General Assembly to ratify the ERA. Virginia is one of the states that did not ratify. Um, it has passed in the Virginia General Assembly, in the, in the Senate, five, four out of the last five years, each time that it was introduced with bipartisan support. And um, we are coming up to a vote most likely on Tuesday. We expect it to pass in the Senate again. The real pushback that we get is from the one person who is the chair of the Privileges and Elections Committee in the House, and he refuses to docket the bill. He says that the deadline expired in 1982, and so it's unlawfully before the Virginia General Assembly. And there are several legal reasons cited in the Congressional Review Service report that contradict that. Um, and that's included in the language of the bill. And we've presented that every year to every legislator. So we've got one man trying to block democracy. We're hoping that this, um, that this rally will draw so much attention and shine a light on what's happening and give us that push that we need to get him to dock at the bill and give us the dignity of the debate. Now, for the listeners out there who aren't really aware of the the progress of the Equal Rights Amendment and the, the historical progression and, and how it was ratified by Congress and the state ratification uh, process, let's, let's stop and, and kind of address that since we're talking about that. Donna, do you want to jump in and talk a little bit about the debate surrounding the Equal Rights Amendment in the 1970s and how we got to the point where... Uh, Virginia is still attempting to ratify it? Well, um, as of right now, 35 states have ratified the Equal Rights Amendment. We need three more states, and Virginia is one of the pivotal states that we feel we have a chance in. Um, back when I moved to Virginia, which was in 1978, as I said, the states that I had lived in, New York, Connecticut, Maryland, they had all passed the Equal Rights Amendment with very, very little problem. Um, when we tried to push for the Equal Rights Amendment to be passed in Virginia, um, we came up against certain arguments such as 
women would therefore be drafted and would have to serve in combat, uh, that there would be unisex bathrooms, um, all sorts of issues that really were beside the point, but more importantly, many of the things that people argued against in Virginia when we tried to talk with them to get the legislation passed in this state have come to fruition without any equal rights amendment being passed. Women now can serve in the military. They can serve in combat if they are qualified for the jobs. Um, There are unisex bathrooms. There are family bathrooms and Um, In many places, there are unisex bathrooms. Um, And um, when we were trying to uh, push for ratification in the state of Virginia, we did everything that we could think of, and we would line the walkway between the General Assembly building and the Capitol and have silent vigils um, almost daily to try to inspire legislators to pass the legislation in this state. Um, uh, And we went to certain legislators, one happening to be a freshman delegate, and he quite frankly said to me, this is not an atmosphere that the Equal Rights Amendment can be passed. And I swallowed. And then he said, what can I do, what issues do you want me to help you work on until the atmosphere is right? And we were able to pass three major pieces of legislation, but they were piecemeal, and they could go Mm -hmm. away. Um, And so, you know, the atmosphere is right now, and that's why um, we are rededicating ourselves to seeing it pass in the state of Virginia. Um, although we sure, were pleased sure. with those pieces of legislation, the work is not done, and none of that is protected by the United States Constitution. When people ask me why I care so much, and I've been working on this for so many years, I say I want my daughter, my daughter-in-law, and my granddaughters to be mentioned in the United States Constitution. Mm-hmm. So that's why mm-hmm. I'm working. Uh, yeah, that's you, excellent. You know, Shannon, You've been doing it for I'm a long time. So, Eileen, um, yeah, so, so I'm listening to what they're. Yeah. Well, it's Go interesting. Yeah. All three, all three of the women on this call are all come here to Virginia. All three of us came here and found out that we were now living in an unratified state, and we were all kind of like, "Are you serious right now? Are you kidding me?" And then we we all mm-hmm. found ourselves. You know, it coming in from another state and taking a look around and going, wait a minute, we're in a situation and we're in a place where we need to do something because now we're here and we're implanted in a place where we can do something. So it's kind of interesting that all three of us came from ratified states and came down here and looked around and said, wait a minute. And I think a lot of the women that live in the state of Virginia are like frogs in water. They just kind of accepted that this was the way it was here. And part of what our job is is to really have an awakening to the women that live here. I, I was at, a, at an event about um, three weeks ago, and I was talking to this woman, and she said to me, she goes, you know, I worked on the Equal Rights Amendment about 30 years ago. So this is a woman at a Republican event. And she says, and one of the delegates patted me on the shoulder and said, now, Betty, 
you know that Virginia men will always take care of their women. And that's the kind of atmosphere that, that Donna was talking about, the idea of that perpetual paternal paternalism that you know they, they don't they don't understand why we're not grateful for that. But you know, really only infants and the infirmed need to be taken care of. And and what the women in this state have are doing is they think that they're equal because, you know, we've come a long way and when Donna talks about the laws that that she got passed, they were great. But, you know, they were great and they were necessary and they helped a lot. But a lot of those incremental laws have actually muddied the water and left an entire generation of women thinking that this problem is no more. But the Constitution so still let's, has not let's been corrected. let's rewind a little bit. Let's rewind a little bit mm-hmm. to the, the time when the Equal Rights Amendment was actually proposed, which was so long ago that it is mm-hmm. mind-boggling mm-hmm. that we're still dealing with <laughs> the same issues. So tell me yeah. a little bit about the history of the bill itself. Well, you know, it's well the the original activity for equal rights started in the 1850s with uh, Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton, and it and it bears uh, one of the interesting things about our rally is that Elizabeth Cady Stanton's great great granddaughter, who runs the Stanton Trust in Connecticut, is coming down to be a guest at our rally and talk about her her great grandmother's you know long term vision for full inclusional equality for women in the United States Constitution and how her great grandmother would be absolutely staggered to know that it still isn't done. So we're really, really thrilled that she's coming down. We are also, um, we, you know, so, but, but when she did that, when, when you have to remember, all of this has taken a long time. You know, the Declaration of Sentiments was written in 1848. Women didn't get the right, just the right to vote until 1923, I believe it was finally signed by Congress, uh, or finally fully ratified. So the, the point is, is that that was a very long struggle. Then we got the right to vote, and then as Candy touched on, you know, the state of Virginia didn't even, like, surrender to the fact that the federal 19th Amendment was in place and vote on it in the General Assembly until 1954. I mean, let that sit there for a minute. 1954, they didn't finally surrender to what happened in 1923. So here we are now. We had Congress ratify the Equal Rights Amendment in 1972. And it's interesting to note that Hawaii ratified the amendment 42 minutes after it passed. And here we are in 2016, and Virginia is still circling the drain on this. It's absolutely amazing to really kind of think about it, but that's that's the fact. But the, the reasons for not having the Equal Rights Amendment is also has a very interesting and a very interesting in history because you know back in the 1800s, women you know women didn't own property; they were re- relegated to perpetual guardianship. They belonged to their male relatives, and that and we got to remember back in the day when the when the Constitution was even written, women were considered to be basically like a perpetual child. They never gained majority. They never had any legal rights because it was like having a, you were like a 10-year-old forever. You weren't expected to be able to take care of yourself or understand right. things. What, and what Thomas Jefferson called the vagaries of politics. He didn't want women to vote because he didn't want women to bother themselves with the vagaries of politics. You know, and that's that nice guy, you know, sexism kind of thing. But then, you know, you go through the different the different generations, and the interesting thing is every generation has had its, its um, resistance to equal rights that the next generation looks back on and thinks is just downright silly. You know, they were in, you know, in the 20s, they were worried about um, petticoat rule. Imagine that, petticoat rule. They were mad, and it was also like, well, gosh, we gave you the right to vote. I mean, isn't that enough? Like, we women are never satisfied. And then you get into the Mad Men culture, and, you know, the 50s and the 60s, 
And then, like Donna said, you know, it was built around in the 70s, it was built around the draft fear of female clergy. Uh, women were going to lose their femininity and become lesbians. I mean, it was all kinds of craziness. And it's always amazed me that the idea of where people would empty their bladders when they weren't at home was a reason to not convey constitutional gender equality. It's always staggered me that that was actually a large part of the reason. Sure, sure. Well, let's go back to Candy. So, Candy, you're talking about uh, the the obstructions to to the the current challenges um, that we're facing. And so, what is the argument that it is null and void? There was a there was a deadline for state ratification, and it has passed. So, tell me a little bit about the lobbying efforts that you guys are doing on various levels to to get around that or to rectify that. Right. Well, and it is correct that the deadline did expire in 1982. However, um, that deadline was an artificial deadline that was added in the resolving clause. It was not part of the language of the amendment, which was voted on and passed overwhelmingly in Congress back in 1972 with bipartisan support. Um, So that's one one thing that is mentioned by the Congressional Review Service report and is included in the language of the bill, and we bring that up every year. The other is the precedent of the Madison Amendment, which was introduced in the Madison administration and wasn't ratified until 203 years later. Um, The third uh, point that we mentioned is the fact that Congress has already demonstrated its full authority over the amendment process, which is granted them by the by Article 5 in the Constitution. Back in 1978, when they realized that 35 states had ratified, they were three states short. They rescinded the, the deadline for 1979 and extended it to 1982. And mm-hmm. one of the... Um, Historians and ERA advocates, David Dismore, noted that had just seven or eight state senators in three states, North Carolina, Florida, and Nevada, had they changed their votes, then the ERA would have been fully ratified by 1979. We can't let seven or eight people that voted this way decades ago prevent us from having the Equal Rights Amendment in the 21st century. It's just sure. crazy. <laughs> and when we, really when we, is. Pardon me? No, go ahead. Uh, when we talk with um, our supporters and ask them, what do you think is the pushback? Why are they trying so hard to deny us our rightful place in the Constitution. And one of our supporters said, I think they feel like things are just moving too fast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. If I might jump in right there. If I might right jump in right there. Yeah. The thing is, is that you know, you, if, you know, Candy has just kind of explained to you all that wonky nonsense, and and we have deluged them with facts. But don't 
don't get facts, get in the way, you know. We have given them, we have a law school journal from William & Mary, and the title explains the content. It's why the Equal Rights Amendment is legally viable and presentable before the states. We have given that to them. They, they're not, the, the people who oppose us haven't even read it. We've given them the Congressional Review Study. We've given them the, the you know, the argument that the, and by the way, it was a Democrat who put the uh, deadline ratification on after the bill was voted on. So the ratification isn't even really is questionably valid. And then we, and then we've uh, talked to them about the idea that you know that the Madison Amendment you know, again the Constitution talks about parity in amendments. You can't have one one amendment that's 200 plus years from start to finish go through, which by the way was a congressional pay raise, and then an equal rights amendment in the same generation, you know, sitting on ice after 10 years. It's just you, the argument of equal treatment is not there with with how you go after pursuing amendments. But as as Candy said, it's really just, they're just throwing us around. Really, this is a tried-and-true uh, tried strategy. You know, they're masking the arguments. They're really afraid of social change. So that what is, they do is so, they have, so true because yeah, I remember right. in the 1970s, um, I remember testifying in front of one of the committees um, on a bank, a piece of banking legislation and the chair of that committee actually looked at me and said, Donna, don't worry your pretty little head. I know Joe. I've met him, and he's going to take care of you. You don't have to worry about this. And mm-hmm. I sat there with my mouth open. Um, so I truly do believe that they are afraid that the world is going too quickly and they don't want to be a part of that advancement. I truly do think that that's the mm-hmm. – because as, as Eileen said, um, they have been inundated with facts, with um, papers, with everything that you can think of. Um, and I think the bottom line is change in Virginia is extremely difficult. Well, well Donna, you, you've been part of the League of Women Voters for, for all of these decades, and as you mentioned earlier, you were able to, to get – some bills uh, that forwarded uh, women's equality through. So what was the legislation that you were able to get passed uh, even though they they refused to pass the Equal Rights Amendment? Well, and again, it is piecemeal. And um, uh, anyway, uh, the three pieces of legislation, one was um, in the state of Virginia, if you died in test state, which means without a will, um, the children, if there were children, got two-thirds of the estate, and the surviving spouse got one-third. And the League mm. of Women Voters found this objectionable because most of the time the surviving spouse is female, um, and if somebody dies in testate, very often there is not a lot of money, uh, most of the time when someone dies, their children are older and um, are out on their own anyway, and um, the surviving spouse, whether it be male or female, should get the funds of the estate. And I remember one of the men said, well, uh, maybe a woman wouldn't take care of her children. Um, you know, maybe maybe we shouldn't do this because um, if she gets the entire estate, then maybe she will not take care of the children. And I remember somebody uh, countering that with, yeah, a male might do that, but a female would take care of her children. So 
it is now that if you die in test state, the surviving spouse inherits. Um, the other bill that was so important was a banking bill. Um, long, long time ago, when you opened a joint bank account, there were cards that you filled out um, declaring what type of account you wanted to have. And if a couple set up a joint bank account, um, the bank did not want to get into any legal ease with that couple. So the way mm -hmm. it was set up is that the um, person who put the money into the account is the person who actually owned the account. So they looked on an account that was owned by husband and wife, and if she wrote on any checks on it, she was considered an agent for him. And if the marriage dissolved, she did not own any part of that joint bank account. And this was wow. so bosses could have a joint account with uh, a secretary. So it was set up mm -hmm. not intentionally to hurt women, but that is exactly what happened. And the third was um, we wanted marriage in Virginia to be viewed as an economic partnership. And so that if a marriage dissolved, at that point, um, if a woman chose to be a stay-at-home mom, you know, it usually was a joint decision, just the same way with the bank account bill. If the woman decided and the husband decided that she was going to be a stay-at-home mom, she did not, and she didn't make any money, she didn't own any of the property, whether it be a house or anything in the house. If she could not prove that she had purchased it with her money, she did not own it. Mm. And that came as a huge shock that this was the case in Virginia. And um, that didn't change until 1983. So, yeah, we, uh, yeah. Yeah, we, yeah, we looked at marriage as an economic partnership, and the understanding was that um, it, it was owned, the things were owned equally. In fact, back then, if a woman inherited a... Um, uh, grandfather clock, unless she had the papers to prove that she had inherited that grandfather clock, there was a divorce. She did not have any say-so in getting that grandfather clock, which is just mind-boggling. That mind-boggling. Mind yeah, yeah, so this goes out to any of you. So what are the what are the current reasons that we need the Equal Rights Amendment? What are the current economic and social situations that uh, that women are still viewed as unequal, why we would need constitutional protection? That's any of you can jump in. I can answer that uh, from two of our students who are going to be speaking at the rally. Uh, women Matter has a VCU chapter um, in Richmond, and um, one of them, Brandon, is a, a, an honors student. He's in the urban planning uh, department there. He came with us mm -hmm. last year to advocate at the General Assembly. And he said um, that, you know, he certainly sees this as a human right, and he hopes someday that he'll be married and he wants his wife to have equal rights and and have full economic earning power, and it will boost their family income. He wants his daughters to have the same rights. But he said right now he's looking at graduation and he's thinking, why would anybody hire him 
if they can hire a woman with the same education and experience and pay her less. So that's certainly part of it. It it goes to the point that what we're really fighting for is not just women's equal rights, but protection against gender discrimination. It cuts Mm -hmm. both ways. And the other student, um, Amanda is president of um, I Am That Girl on the VCU campus, as well as a member of our Women Matter VCU chapter. And she said she pays the same tuition that the male students do, and yet she faces an 8 to 12 percent uh, differential in earning potential when she graduates that only gets wider as she gets older. And that's going to impact her earnings over her lifetime, her ability to pay back her student loans, her family's income. And then at retirement, it's going to seriously impact her Social Security earnings for retirement. So those are just two of the economic reasons. There are other uh, other reasons, too. Um, we need protection against gender violence in the military still and on college campuses. Those are just two more examples of, you know, how a ratified Equal Rights Amendment will undergird any legislation along those lines. Yeah, yeah. what Candy, what, what Candy is absolutely right. What we have here is, and I don't want to get too wonky in the weeds with the law, but what we have here is you have to understand that the any constitutional principle, when you take a case to the Supreme Court, they, they look at it and they apply strict scrutiny. And they ask, what is the incremental law, what is the constitutional principle that's been violated? And when we when I when when you look at those incremental laws like Title IX that, that Candy alluded to and violence against women and the Equal Pay Act of nineteen sixty three, they're all weakly enforceable. And the reason that they're weakly enforceable is they're intermediate level law coming out of Congress. But they're sitting on no constitutional foundation. They're they're nails without a hammer. They're they're sitting there, they're walls, they're incremental law walls, but there's no foundation for them to sit on. And this is really kind of backwards. I mean, we're, you know, you're supposed to have, you know, the constitutional principle and then the incremental laws of Congress sit on that constitutional principle. They're sitting on nothing. They're sitting on nothing. And, and Justice Scalia, and, and, and again, Candy gave you those numbers about the 8 to 10% pay differential first job out of college. That has been well documented by lots of different Places we and again we've got we have done our homework. The Economic Policy Institute has grafted for decades that this pay differential exists, and we know it exists. And what happens is that if a woman wants to go and seek redress, it's on her. It's on her because there's no real constitutional principle that's been broken. And in the current um, body politic, what has happened is we have a lot of different cases. The most notorious being recently being the Walmart versus Duke case. And the Walmart mm-hmm. versus Duke was a class action suit where Betty Duke, an African-American woman, started a class action suit because she noted that at Walmart that 88% of the men, of the people that were managers were men, and, and about 2.3% of the managers, um, 88% of the workforce was women, excuse me, but 2% of the management force was, was, was women. So they're like, wait a minute, flag on the field. This is a disparity here. You know, we're almost 100% of the workforce, but yet we're only 2% of people that ever get off of just working as floor help. 
So they sued on systemic gender in, in um, you know, systemic. Well, when they went to the Supreme Court, though, the Supreme Court turned them away on the basis of, of equality because there is no gender equality clause in the Constitution. But they really wanted to take the case because it was the largest discrimination case, equality, you know, discrimination case that ever come before the court. So they, they put it in under the Commerce Clause. The problem is it really didn't fit the Commerce Clause. And they, that, that was all they had. It was a close thing. It failed at the Supreme Court, not because they didn't have a complaint of gender discrimination, but because they didn't have a complaint that fit nicely into the Commerce Clause. So these people were turned away because what they sought, which was redress against gender discrimination, was not something that the Supreme Court could take. And, and, and that it, it's also bear remembering, a lot of people think that the Lilly Ledbetter Act took care of the problem of gender discrimination and women getting paid inequitably in the work, workplace. The Lilly Ledbetter Act is actually really an example of the problem because the reason that the Lilly Ledbetter Act is an act, it's a congressional act, is because Lilly Ledbetter took her complaint to the Supreme Court and was turned away. And she was turned away and, and Scalia was asked in um in in at a college uh, Hastings College why he turned why he was against her he 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 voted against her in the supreme court why he voted against Lily Ledbetter when she went to the supreme court and he said you know the constitution does not prohibit against gender discrimination i was under no obligation to do so so what we're dealing with now is women are going and working and going to all different you know kinds of little areas of the work but it reminds me of that old saying the higher you climb the harder you fall you know, women are going mm-hmm. all through, and they don't realize that they are not on equal footing, that they don't have the Constitution behind them. And then people say, well, we've got these incremental laws. Well, anything less than the Constitution is simply less. And that well, gets sure. and I the idea. Scalia yeah. said that equal rights uh, is not that they're not guaranteed. It's that they're not pro- it's not prohibited to yeah. distribute, yeah. discriminate yeah. on the basis yeah. of gender. And that yeah. is a very yeah. strong statement. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Because he got some, he had some cheeky female law student ask him how he how he could he dare to explain himself as to why he would turn Willie Ledbetter away. And he basically said, Because I could. I don't have to I don't have to stand on the constitutional principle of equality because there is none. So, you know, gender equality is not in the Constitution. I was under no constitutional obligation to decide for her. So the Lily Ledbetter Act is really, in effect, a consolation prize. And, and the other so what little of law that... What about no, well, men benefit too. Benef- men benefit yeah. from the Equal Rights Amendment. You know, they don't benefit. There's not as many reasons why they need it, but when they need it, they need it. Uh, there's a case right now in Utah, which is just about just hit the papers about three weeks ago. There's a law in Utah that says, and what happened was this 20-year-old couple, um, unmarried, had a baby. Well, the girl, the young woman, puts the baby up for a blind adoption, and the 20-year-old man is like. I don't want a blind adoption. I don't want this child to, be, you know, be given to a family, and I never know where it is, where it ends up. I have no contact. I don't want to do that. And Utah set law doesn't care. Utah law says that the male parent has no rights if the if he, unless he's married to the female to stop that adoption. Now, you know, in Virginia that happens to not be legal, but the point of the matter is that would be completely unconstitutional under an equal rights amendment. So there is reasons why that you know, why men um, benefit, you know, from from a ratified equal rights amendment. A lot of the reasons why men needed an equal rights amendment have been have been 
resolved. When they thought the Goreitzman was going to come in in the 70s, it's interesting. They fixed all the things that bothered men, like when a, a male survivor couldn't get Social Security for his um, deceased wife, nor could the children. If the children, if you, a woman who worked and paid into Social Security died, the children received no benefits from their dead mother, none. It's only that even though even if she paid, it didn't count. So, and that didn't get corrected until um, a, a SCOTUS went, Weisenthal went to the Supreme Court, and actually Ruth Bader Ginsburg argued that um, case. A, a woman died in childbirth in New Jersey, and the, the, the husband with the surviving infant went to get Social Security for the child and couldn't get it. But that was something that um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg argued in New Jersey back in the 70s. So a lot of those piecemeal laws were taken care of for men, but we still have these outlying laws like this adoption case in Utah. So men do benefit. Men also benefit by the fact that when they're when their partner, you know, it's an economic kitchen table issue. You know, if there's 77 cents on the dollar sitting on the kitchen table from half of the marital partnership, that's a bottom line issue. That's a lot of money, and it can be a lot of money. And so that's an issue. It's an issue for families. It's, an, it's you know, and, and frankly, it's also an issue of what's right. Um, women are the only definitely. group that the Constitution doesn't recognize. You know, well, gender. Gender is the only class that is not equalized. Gender, is, as Scalia said, you are not under obligation to treat people equally based on their gender. I mean, if you sit and think about that for a minute, it's just, it's a staggering thing that that still is not done. It's really, really It staggering. really is. It is, yeah, it, yeah. It, 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 it is mind-blowing. Yeah. Now, let me go to Donna for a second. Now, you've been yes. involved with the League of Women Voters for a really long time, and so I'm wondering your take on why the sudden resurgence in the, or what appears to be a sudden resurgence in the ratification of the Equal Rights Amendment, because it was, it was something that was kind of just simmering for a number of decades, and, and, and laws were being passed bit by bit, the Paycheck Fairness Act, uh, you know, going before Congress, and then, and then state laws. So to what do you attribute the resurgence of interest <laughs> in putting this in the Constitution? Well, um, I can tell you that it has always been um, part of the uh, handbook, if you will, of positions uh, with which um, the League of Women Voters will advocate and lobby. So it is never, that has remained one of our strongest positions. But uh, for some reason, this past year, um, a number of us in the Richmond League looked at each other um, and said, we've got to do something about this. Um, the League had proposed nationally and statewide looking at some other issues. And quite frankly, to be very, very honest, a number of us in the Richmond League did not feel that our efforts um, would be served to be working on studying those issues. We usually study issues for two years, and then um, come up with consensus with which we uh, develop positions, and then that allows us to lobby and advocate. And mm -hmm. um, we just looked at each other and said the league was started based on um, getting women the right to vote. And voting has always been a primary um, part of the League of Women Voters. And we just decided it was time to re-look at this issue again and push for this again. And so we 
um, brought it up to the state league in Virginia, and they said go for it, you know. And so we have been looking at it again and strategizing with um, Women Matter and AAUW, the American Association of University Women, and Mm -hmm. um, that has come to uh, the fruition of this rally um, where all these groups are working toward making it happen. But it was just sort of something generic or, or, you know, just organic that came out of a group of us in the Richmond League saying, hey, we need to go back to this because that's what was our foundation. That's what we started Excellent. And even though those pieces of legislation were passed in the 70s, as Candy and Eileen have said, they are piecemeal. That's all they are. Um, There is no teeth in them. Um, If you had a change of outlook in the Virginia General Assembly, those laws could go, you know, could disappear um, because there's nothing in them that is protected um, by the United States Constitution. So, yeah, constitutional sure, rights are conveyed sure. from one generation to another. You know, as we as we look at the, we even just look at the the the, the way the rights amendment has evolved. You can see the frailty of not having something enshrined in the Constitution. I mean, it's amazing to know that the Equal Rights Amendment was really basically came out of the Republican Party. And it's amazing to know that the ratification deadline that was meant to be a poison pill was put on there by a Democrat uh, from North Carolina, Sam Irwin from Watergate fame. And and now today, the Republicans are the ones largely, in, particularly in the House of Delegates, that are stonewalling the Equal Rights Amendment, and it's the Democrats that are championing the bill. So you can see the way generationally, you know, the vulnerability of, of of laws that can be voted in and voted out and voted in and voted out. But but I, I wanted to go back to an earlier point to just um, make a make a clear in terms of this kind of like this dance around the maypole that we're getting because because they're working really, really hard to admit that this if this is not just cultural fear of social change. You know, they, they have we go up to Congress and we talk to them about removing the ratification deadline because we also have bills in Congress to lift the ratification deadline. But we're not at the General Assembly, we're up there. And what they say to us up there is very clearly they go, We bring us in a freshly ratified state. We need an actionable reason to remove the deadline. We haven't had a ratified state in 30 years. Bring us a freshly ratified state and give us a reason to remove the ratification deadline and press the reset button. And then I say to them, well, the state of Virginia wants you to lift the ratification deadline first. And they go, no, 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 no. <laughs> This is a state's rights issue. The state does its job. We do our job. And then if the courts want to get involved, the courts can do their job. Their their attitude is that they need an actionable reason to remove the deadline and that the state, I mean, Virginia fought a war over states' rights, and now they're telling us that they can't act without Congress's permission? I mean, it's ludicrous. It's ludicrous. And then Congress is saying, and Congress is saying, oh, no, 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 no. They're just giving you a reason. And that's the the part I think is the most maddening. You know, this is is a pretty, this is a tried and true strategy. They've done this many, many times. You know, you, you take this, you say, oh, no, I'm not against equality for women. Oh, not me. I'd love to vote for it, but I just can't. They hide behind this constitutional purity and this scholarly, and minutia of law because they don't want to say that they're culturally afraid of the change because that is something that they would not be able to defend. And that's why they stonewall us in the House of Delegates. And it's interesting, the Virginia Senate, which is a room full of lawyers, 
They pass it every year. The room full of lawyers all understand that this is perfectly within their legality to vote on this. And we pass it with bipartisan support. And then we go over to the House of Delegates, which doesn't have a lot of lawyers. Most of them are like business people in rural Virginia, you know, who own feed stores and insurance companies and, you know, family businesses. And, you know, and they, come to, they come to Richmond for two months a year and they make laws. They seem to be the ones who are so stuck off in the weeds and they don't understand that the lawyers on the other side of the chamber can vote for this. But somehow they say that they constitutional purity says that they can't. They're really just right. hiding behind this as a minutia of law. They're putting it up as a smokescreen. And every year well, we talking just fight about a little the bit diversity. more. Yeah, talking about the diversity of the people who do support it, um, mm-hmm. at the events that you're planning next month, uh, there, there's a, you've got a huge cross-section of people. So, Candy, if you could tell me uh, a little bit about the list of people that are speaking and the different organizations that are uh, and involved in the different, I mean, you've got uh, up to the governor of Virginia. So tell me a little bit about what's going to be addressed and what people are going to be talking about. Yeah, it it is really exciting to have the governor speaking because I'm sure you remember, Shannon, three years ago when women were not only not allowed on the Capitol steps but were arrested for being on the Capitol steps by Capitol Police and riot gear. So we've mm-hmm. really come <laughs> a long way in a couple of years, as far as that's concerned. Um, so yes, we've got we've got the governor, we've got the attorney general. Hopefully, we have the lieutenant governor and the at least the patrons of our bills in the general assembly. That will depend on when they have to go into session. Uh, we have. The Honorable Leslie Byrne, the the former U.S. representative and first woman elected to Congress from from Virginia, um, as Eileen mentioned earlier, we have Colleen Jenkins, the great great granddaughter of Elizabeth Cady Stanton. Um, we have Desiree Jordan, who is also from a ratified state, the state of New York. She's coming down. Andrea Miller, the executive director of People Demanding Action who uh, will speak to the fact that Congress is waiting for the next ratified state to act. Um, mm-hmm. our, we have our students coming to talk about how they're impacted. Uh, we did have a representative from Black Lives Matter, but she has uh, a job that's going to conflict with the time of the rally, so um, unfortunately we won't hear from her um, let's see, who else do we have? We have a military veteran who is coming to speak, who testified before the Senate committee last week, um, and just just amazing testimony. Uh, we invited Senator Ben Cardin, who is co-patron of the bill in Congress in the Senate, to uh, remove the deadline, co-patron with um, Senator Mark Kirk from Illinois, Um and they are not able to come. We have a letter from Senator Cardin that we're going to be reading. Um, we have Ellie Smeal and Terry O'Neill um, kind of representing the old guard. We have some young women from uh, groups that are just starting up in uh, our Virginia colleges um, who, when they learn that they're not part of the Constitution, they are shocked and outraged. 
And this is part of the issue, too, that it has taken so long to ratify. Most people assume it already has been ratified. And Mm -hmm. so when they find out that it has not, then we are starting to build momentum again. One of our friends um, who lives in the Roanoke region is the legislative chair for the Greater Federation of Women's Clubs in her area. And the women's clubs in Virginia have taken the ERA as a legislative priority. And that will be their lobby day when we have the rally. So having them come from the rural areas of Virginia and speaking to their legislators and saying that it's important to them to be protected by the Constitution is huge. I, I just can't even tell yeah, you how those, those delegates from these small towns us. are going to be hiding under their desks when we get done with them. <laughs> <laughs> we hope. <laughs> we hope. We hope. And, 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 and Candy, Candy brought up a very important point. 72% of Americans think that the Equal Rights Amendment is already in the Constitution. And 97% think that it should be. So really, we're asking the Virginia General Assembly to do something to help make the United States of America the country that most Americans think it already is, and even more Americans think it should be. And it doesn't really won't cost anything. We're not asking them to vote on something with a budget. We're just asking for them. And if there is any cost to the Equal Rights Amendment, the cost would be a positive because when women are paid what they're worth, they don't need, you know, if you ever have a, pay, a wage gap, that wage gap's got to be filled somehow. And that wage gap is filled by government programs. And women deserve the dignity of standing next to men and making what men make and not having to get a government program to subsidize their, their artificially depressed income. So in terms of what the General Assembly is supposed to vote on, which things are, which are fiscally helpful to taxpayers, it's fiscally helpful to taxpayers to raise women up because the rising tide raises all boats. Shannon, for the people who are listening out there, what can they do if they want to participate in the fight for the Equal Rights Amendment, be it in the, the Commonwealth of Virginia or on a national level, what can yep. the average citizen do to help make this happen? Well, first thing they can do is they can pull out their cell phones and they can text ERA to 52886. That's text the three letters, E-R-A, and send it to 52886. That will roll them into a national petition, and they enter their zip code, and it will tell them who their senator and who their congressperson is. And at that point, they basically... It will automatically send a letter to that that uh, congressperson and that senator. And if the congressperson or senator is already co-sponsoring those bills and have has supported them in the past, they will get a thank you for supporting. A you know, high five, keep doing it. And if they haven't signed on to the bill and they're not supporting it, they're getting a I want you to sign under the bill. So people who live in ratified states need to understand that they need to help the unratified states because. You know, we're, all our wagons are hitched together. Now, if anybody mm-hmm. listening has family in Virginia, or we ask people to call in. Last year, um, the House of Delegates didn't even want to put the bill in a subcommittee, and we had a national call campaign into the into Speaker House, William House phone, and um, the chair of the committee that's stonewalling 
uh, Delegate Mark Cole's phone, and their phones were so jammed that they put us in subcommittee just to, just to make the phone stop ringing. They, we got into the <laughs> subcommittee and they turned us down, but they, they, could, they couldn't ignore us. And that's part of what we're doing. We're building a momentum to let them know we're not going away. You know, if not now, when? A when, hundred years is long enough, and that is, again, the byline of our rally. A hundred years is long enough. We're, you know, we're going to make them not ignore us. So there are things the people that don't live in Virginia need to understand that their state may have ratified 30 years ago. If you, you know, but they're sitting in a ratified state stuck in limbo because the Commonwealth of Virginia is trying to take its time. And I do believe the state of Virginia will finally do the right thing, just like it took them forever. You know, the, Virginia <laughs> takes its sweet time. Eventually, though, it does the right thing. Eventually, they will do this. I'm just wondering, you know, when, when that's going to be. But eventually it will happen. But if we get momentum, you know, public and, and, and also tell people, everybody on this call, you know, tomorrow over the water cooler, look at the people you work with and say, do you know the people rights in them and it's not in the Constitution, that the Constitution does not guarantee gender equality between between the sexes? And they're going to look at you and go, oh, sure it does. I, I remember my mom marched for that, and they got that. Well, yeah, well, where did you grow up? Well, I grew up in uh, Connecticut. Well, then you're right. They did ratify it, but it never finished becoming a constitutional amendment. Did you know that? So what's what's thought, you know, if we were, the things that plagued us a generation ago have completely changed. Women in the military, check. Unisex bathrooms, check. You know, all those kinds of things. What we have now is two problems. We have the inertia that comes from nothing happening for 30 years, and inertia can be a powerful force. And the other one is the lack of information and the misinformation. And any person who goes to our website, women-matter and dash matters dot org, and all the set up as an information website. Take the time to read it. There's a couple of easy three-minute videos that are quick tutorials on the subject. Spread the word, raise the awareness, because our biggest enemy is lack of information. That's our problem. And, and also, today. right at the top of your website, there's a a button to click that will take you to all of the information about the rally. Is that right? Yes. Yes, yeah. and you can also sign the state petition, and you can and you and uh, the text CRA to five two eight eight six. It's all on our website. And, and if you want and to learn more, we we had Michigan contact us the other day. Michigan ratified the Equal Rights Amendment a bazillion years ago. But you know, the, uh, a woman in Michigan contacted us and said, "Can I send you money to help pay for your rally?" I mean, you know, people around this around the country that are paying attention are thrilled that we're trying to move it along because you know they've been frustrated because they know the people that know it's never done, never been finished, are kind of like, "Oh, come on, what is what's Virginia waiting for?" You know, well, Virginia's waiting like it did with the right to vote, I guess. But, you know, enough is enough. It's time. It's time. And, and our hashtag and is because for years, And for years, they uh, people within Virginia legislature have said to us, well, the 14th Amendment to the United States Constitution covers you and takes care of nope. you. And nope. then if you point out to them, then why do we need the 19th Amendment to get the right to vote? And they well, just stand there staring at mm -hmm. you. You know, yeah, we'll come back with that. Mm -hmm. The the other thing is that there's lots of case law, and the more you know, I, if I keep this up for a few more years, they're going to have to give me an honorary law degree. One of the things <laughs> that um, one of the things that that it fast. First of all, I just go right to Scalia. I'm like, you don't have to take my word for it. Scalia says it, so you know, Scalia says it, and Ginsburg says the same thing. Now, those two can't agree on where to order pizza for lunch, but they agree that the Equal Rights Amendment is, you know, that gender equality is not in the Constitution. But, you know, 
here was a case in 1948. This is an interesting case. And there's been lots and lots of cases of gender equality. But this is, I, I like the 1948 case because it's so clear. Now, remember, 1948 is post-World War II. It's after the 19th Amendment has been, you know, and it's post-World War II. A, a Michigan woman um, was a barmaid, and she went to bartending school, and she went to get a job as a bartender in Michigan. Well, just like there's that funky law in Utah about adoption law, well, there was this funky law in Michigan that said if you couldn't work as a bartender if you were a woman unless your father or your husband owned the bar. Well, she sued for gender discrimination and it went all the way to the Supreme Court and she named, and she was suing claiming gender equality under the 14th Amendment. They turned her away and they said that they did so. The decision included the fact that the 14th Amendment did not include gender discrimination. They said that. And that's 1948. They said that. Now, the, the Constitution is unchanged with regards to women. It hasn't changed anything. The only thing that's passed since then is the, you know, the nothing that has anything to do with women. You know, you got the Madison Amendment, which is a congressional pay raise, you got, but nothing. The, the laws, the rights that women have in the Constitution, which is the right to vote, has not changed. It's the same Constitution it was in 1948 when they made that ruling that the 14th Amendment did not include gender equality. It did not include, and when you go back to the 14th Amendment, you remember that that was a Civil War Amendment. That was written at after the Civil War to take the three-fifths of a person that, that was conveyed upon black men and give, make them full citizens. That was the Civil Rights Amendment. And, the, and the, it's interesting that, you know, the, the movie Lincoln was filmed in the Virginia General Assembly. And I always kind of like chuckle to myself in a very sardonic way when I'm walking through the General Assembly because they filmed it in that. And if you remember in that movie when they were talking about passing the 14th Amendment and then one of the na people that didn't want it said, well, what's next? Rights for women? You know, if they, if they had known that anybody was going to try to say that the 14th Amendment conveyed rights to women, it would have never passed. It would have never, but they sure. never intended it to be. And indeed, it does not. Well, you know, let's, not. Say really that, let's say that we... we I just ahead. was going to tell about a friend of ours who pointed out that her grandmother, who served in the military years ago, wanted to be buried at Arlington Cemetery, and she cannot be. And I think that that is just so sad. It's really outrageous that mm -hmm. women don't, women veterans don't get the honor that they deserve. Yeah, and that's part. That's a whole other cultural issue. I mean, I went to Normandy, France, a couple of years ago, and walking around the cemetery, and I see a woman's name on the headstone, and I asked the dose, and I said, "That's a woman's name." Dose says, "Oh, there's 113 women buried in Normandy." I had to go all the way to Normandy, France to find that out. You know, the fact is women have died in every war there ever was, but, you know, we don't, we don't respect that part of our history. The narrative is, is that women have not paid the price for this country, but, yes, indeed, they have. They and women have. have always paid the price for this country, but that's, that's a narrative that we don't really stress. You know, there's a Change.org petition right now about women pilots in World War II not being able to be buried in Arlington Cemetery because a lot of these old ladies are now passing away. You know, these are women pilots who faced combat, and they are not being allowed to be buried there, and it's absolutely unfair. But this is part of the – this is all part of the whole narrative of the fact that we're supposed to be – you know, there's sort of this cultural pushback that men own – 
all of that, 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 you know, the ability to be, and, you know, women have died. I mean, and the idea that the women that died in Normandy, they, a lot of them were there as, as, as nurses. A lot of them were there as volunteers. They're, they, they were there for, for little to no pay. Many of them volunteered. They weren't drafted. They went there voluntarily. They died. Dead is dead. Their families had just as much of a dead child as any other gender. And, and history has absolutely ignored them and then turned around and said, you can't be buried in Arlington, even though you gave your life for your country. I mean, there were so, so would many the ERA levels rectify that? Would the ERA, I mean, that's a good if question. it were passed, would it rectify the Arlington issue? You know, I don't know because you're not a living person at that point, so I don't know. Certainly one could you – know, I think it's going to be rectified because the public's going to be outraged enough and they're going to have to rectify it. But that's the culture in which we live where the idea that somehow, you know, we don't really want to do that. We've never done that. And, and somehow what the contribution of women just doesn't meet the bar of equality. And that's, that's, a, that's a larger cultural narrative that we're fighting, that we're fighting. And the idea that, you know, women in World War II, like this woman's mother, wanted to be buried in Arlington. You know, she, see, these women were in combat zones. These, well, many of these women pilots, you know, a lot of them died. And, you know, dead is dead. They died serving their country. And for, for some reason, and again, it goes back to that nuance of cultural, uh, of that cultural sexism that is so, and, and, and another person, I, I wanted to give you another point, and I, is a person said to me, well, you don't really think that a ratified Equal Rights Amendment is going to cure sexism, do you? Well, of course not. The, you know, constitutional um, prohibition of, 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 of racial discrimination hasn't cured racism. But we know where the, we know where the floor is. We, the Constitution has taken a stand. We have a bar to measure up to. You know, with, the, with, the, with, the, with, the, with the respect to gender equality, there is no such constitutional principle to even begin to find equality. And that's really, that's probably the part that's the worst. So a lot of people say that the passage of the Equal Rights Amendment at this point is merely symbolic, but I I think that's not true because we have to have that foundation on which Mm -hmm. to build, uh, you you know, like you said, the, the constitutional base for the laws to be built on top of that that can genuinely address the discrimination. Well, unfortunately, our... Our time is up. We've filled an hour. It's gone by so quickly. Donna, Grant, thank you. Graham, Eileen Davis, both from uh, uh, Candy and Eileen from Women Matter, women-matter.org, and Donna Gransky from the League of Women Voters. And I, if you're listening on BTR, um, I put a link to the rally page uh, on on the broadcast page. If you're listening via iTunes or anything else, go to that Women Matter website, and it will it will take you to all of the details. Ladies, thank you so much for being with us. Tonight. Thank you, thank you, Shannon. Shannon, good night, everyone. On? All right, good night. Good night. Good night. Are we there? Are we out.
Geico presents sharing versus oversharing. Way early this morning, Brad Higdon shared a major spoiler alert from everyone's favorite hit show, Sad Emojis, to express his feelings about the plot twist and a playlist he made to drown out his sorrows? Dude, oversharing alert. Brad, Geico has something worth sharing with those who haven't defriended you. Like how you could save hundreds on your car insurance at Geico.com. So stop moping about the post-apocalyptic world and start saving in the real world. Geico, 15 minutes could save you 15% or more on car insurance. 